friends, and welcome back to Bitching About the Decameron. Now, we got to about halfway, two-thirds of the way through the seventh day in the last episode, and we were ready to start story number eight. However, I read story number eight, and it's not one that I want to tell. And then I read story number nine, and decided that I didn't want to tell that one either. So we're going to hear Dionio's story for the seventh day, and then we're going to move on to day eight. All that now remained was for the king to tell his story, and as soon as he perceived that the ladies had stopped mourning over the fate of the innocent pear tree, he began, It goes without saying that a just king must be the first to observe those laws that he himself has prescribed, and that, if he fails to do so, he deserves rather to be punished as a slave than honoured as a king. And yet, almost of necessity, it now behoves me, as your king, to commit precisely this error and thus incur your censure. Yesterday evening, when I decreed the form that our discussions of today were to take, I fully intended to forgo my privilege for once, submit to the same rules yourselves, and address myself to the theme upon which you have all been speaking. But the story I was proposing to relate has now been told, and moreover, the subject has been so extensively and admirably discussed that for my own part, however much I cudgelled my brains, I cannot think of anything to say on this topic that will stand comparison with the things already said. Since, therefore, being obliged to infringe the law which I myself have made, I am worthy of punishment, I shall straightway declare that I am ready to make whatever amends may be required of me, and fall back upon my customary privilege. A quick aside, everybody, that my cat has joined me, so you may hear the occasional noise from her collar, but she seems pretty settled, so we'll see how we go. Taking my cue, dearest ladies, from Alyssa's compelling account of the godfather and the mother of his godchild, as well as from the extraordinary simplicity of the Sienese, I shall tell you a little tale about them, which has nothing to do with the tricks played by clever wives on their foolish husbands, but which, albeit much of it will strain your credulity, should nevertheless prove entertaining in parts. For those who don't recall, in one of our recent episodes, a man became a godfather so that he would have more opportunities to socialise with the child's mother, and eventually did find a way of having sex with her, despite the fact that the godparent and the parent of a child are considered to be very close in medieval kinship ties, so that that is a, something of an incestuous relationship. There once lived, in the Porto Solea district of Siena, two young men of the people, called Tingoccio Mini and Meuccio di Tura, who nearly always went about together, and who, to all outward appearances, were quite devoted to one another. Being in the habit, like other folk, of going to church and listening to sermons, they had frequently heard about the glory and the suffering that awaited the souls of the dead, each according to his merits, in the world to come. But since they wanted to find out for certain about these matters, and could think of no other way of doing it, they promised one another that whichever of them died first would return, if possible, to the one who was still alive, and give him all the information he wanted and they sealed this compact with a solemn oath. Not long after making this promise, whilst the pair of them were still going about together in the way we have described, Tignoccio happened to become godfather to the infant son of a man called Ambrogio Anselmini, who lived with his wife, Monomica, in the district of Camporeggi. 
Now this Monomita was a woman of great beauty and attractiveness, and notwithstanding his sponsorship of the child, Tingoccio, who called to see her every now and then with Meuccio, fell in love with her. But he was not the only one, for Meuccio, having heard Tingoccio singing her praises and finding her very attractive, also fell in love with her. Neither man spoke to the other about his love for the lady, but each for a different reason. Tingoccio took care not to say anything to Meuccio because he had a guilty conscience about falling in love with the mother of his godchild, and would have been ashamed to have anyone know about it. But Meuccio kept it to himself for quite another reason, namely that he realised how fond Tingoccio was of her, and therefore said to himself, If I take him into my confidence, he will be jealous of me, and since he is her child's godfather and can talk to her whenever he likes, he will do his best to turn her against me, with the result that I shall never get anywhere with her. Things remained much as we have described them, with the two young men pining away for Monomita, until Tingoccio, who was in a better position to open his heart to the lady, played his cards so skilfully that he obtained what he wanted from her, a circumstance that did not escape the notice of Meuccio, who was anything but pleased about it. However, since he was hoping that his own desires would one day find fulfilment, and was anxious not to provide Tingoccio with the slightest cause to ruin his chances or interfere in any way with his plans, he pretended to know nothing. And there, for the time being, the matter rested, Tingoccio being luckier than his comrade in his love for the lady. But the richness of the soil in Monomita's garden inspired Tingoccio to dig it over with so much energy and zeal that he contracted a fever from his labours, which left him so enfeebled that within the space of a few days, being unable to shake it off, he departed this life. On the night of the third day after his unfortunate demise, being unable, perhaps, to make it any sooner, he kept his promise and appeared to Meuccio, who was lying in bed fast asleep. Tingoccio called out to him, and Meuccio woke up with a start, saying, Who are you? I am Tingoccio, he replied, and I have returned, as I promised, to bring you tidings of the other world. Having recovered from the shock of seeing him, Meuccio said, My brother, you are welcome. He then asked him whether, as he put it, he was lost, and Tinguccio replied, Lost? If a thing is lost, it can't be found. So what on earth would I be doing here if I was lost? That's not what I mean, said Meuccio. What I want to know is whether you are among the souls of the damned in the scourging fires of hell. Not exactly, replied Tinguccio, but I'm being severely punished just the same because of the sins I committed, and it's all very painful. Then Meuccio questioned him in detail about the punishments that were meted out there for each of the sins committed on earth, and Tingoccio described them one by one. And when Meuccio went on to ask him whether there was anything he could do for him, Tingoccio replied in the affirmative, saying that he should arrange for prayers and masses to be recited on his behalf, and for alms to be given, since these things were highly beneficial to the souls of the dead. All of this Meuccio readily agreed to do. This is standard 14th century understanding of how things work. Most souls don't go to hell, most souls go to purgatory, where people work off their sins with various torments, and the only way to speed it up is for living people to pray for them and have masses said for them and alms given for them, and generally sort of accrue spiritual credit on the behalf of the soul of the departed. This spiritual economy was a very real motivator for very concrete transactions in the Middle Ages. Uh, many people left in their wills, for example, 
funds to be given out to beggars in exchange for those beggars praying for the soul of the dead. Similarly, patrons would fund hospitals, which were a bit more like nursing homes, I guess, at the time, on the condition that those people who were staying there would pray for them. So there was this whole spiritual economy thing going on. Just as Tingotio was leaving, Meuccio remembered about Monomita, and raising his head a little, he said, By the way, Tingotio, what punishment have they given you for making love to the mother of your godchild? Whereupon Tingotio replied, My brother, as soon as I arrived down there, I was met by one who seemed to know all of my sins by heart, and who ordered me to proceed to the place where I am being severely punished for my misdeeds. There I found a large company of souls condemned to the same punishment as myself, and as I stood in their midst, I suddenly remembered how I had carried on with my godchild's mother, and since I was expecting to have to pay a much heavier penalty for this than the one I had been given, I began, even though I was being roasted in a fierce and enormous fire, to tremble all over with fear. On noticing this, one of my fellow sinners said, Why do you tremble so when standing in the fire? Have you done something worse than the rest of us? Oh, my friend, said I, it fills me with terror when I think of the judgment that awaits me for a dreadful sin I have committed. He then asked me which sin I was referring to, and I said, I have made love to the mother of my godchild. He had a good laugh over this, and said, Be off with you, you fool. There's nothing special down here about the mother of a godchild. I was so relieved to hear it that I could have wept. The dawn was now approaching, so Tingotio said, Farewell, Meuccio. I can't stay here any longer. And all of a sudden he was gone. Having learnt that there was nothing special down there about the mother of a godchild, Meuccio began to laugh at his own stupidity for having in the past spared several such ladies from his attentions. From that day forth, having shed his ignorance, he was a much wiser man in dealing with such matters. And if only Friar Rinaldo had known as much as Meuccio, there would have been no need for him to make up syllogisms when persuading Madonna Agnesa to minister to his pleasures. The sun was descending in the west, and a gentle breeze had risen, when the king, having brought his story to an end, removed the crown of laurel from his brow, there being no one else left to speak, and placed it upon the head of Loretta, saying, With this, your namesake, madam, I crown you queen of our company, and now it is up to you as our empress to give such orders as you consider apt for our common entertainment and pleasure. He then returned to his place and sat down, and Loretta, having become their queen, summoned the steward, and ordered him to set the tables in the delectable valley at a somewhat earlier hour than usual, so that they could return at their leisure to the palace. And she also instructed him about the things he was to do during the rest of her reign. You may not recall, but this day's stories have been taking place in a somewhat implausible location called the Valley of the Ladies, where they've taken a temporary excursion. This done, she turned to address the company, saying, Yesterday, Dionio insisted that we should talk today about the tricks played upon husbands by their wives, and but for the fact that I do not wish it to be thought that I belong to that breed of snapping curs who immediately turn round and retaliate, I should oblige you on the morrow to talk about the tricks played on wives by their husbands. But instead of doing that, I should like each of you to think of a story about the tricks that people in general, men and women alike, are forever playing upon one another. This, I feel sure, will be no less agreeable a topic than the one to which we have today been addressing ourselves. Having spoken these words, she rose to her feet and dismissed the company until supper time. 
And so the whole company arose, gentlemen and ladies alike, and some of them began to wade barefooted in the limpid waters of the lake, whilst others went roaming off over the greensward to beguile the time amongst the tall, straight trees. Dionio and Fiametta sang a long duet about Palamon and Arcate, and so, in their several different ways, they whiled away the time to their entire delight and joy until the hour of supper, when they seated themselves at a table beside the tiny lake. There they supped in gay and leisurely fashion, with never a fly to trouble them, fanned by a gentle breeze that came from the surrounding hills, with the dulcet songs of a thousand birds delighting their ears. No more than half the vesperal hour had elapsed when the tables were cleared away, and at the Queen's behest they wandered for a while through the delectable valley before slowly retracing their steps towards their lodging. Jesting and laughing not only about the things they had been saying earlier in the day, but many others also, in due course they arrived at the goodly palace a little before dark. There they dispelled the fatigue of their brief journey with the coolest of wines and the daintiest of sweetmeats, and in no time at all they were dancing carols beside the beautiful fountain, accompanied sometimes by Tindaro on the cornemuse and sometimes by the music of other instruments. Finally, however, the Queen ordered Philomena to sing a song, and as usual, I won't read it. All of her companions surmised from this song that Philomena was engrossed in some new and exciting love, and since the words seemed to imply that she had gone beyond the mere exchange of amorous glances, some of those present, supposing her to have savoured the fruits of her love, were not a little envious. But when her song was finished, the Queen, remembering that the following day was a Friday, graciously addressed the whole company as follows. Noble ladies, young gentlemen, tomorrow, as you know, is the day that is consecrated to the passion of our Lord, and you will doubtless recall that when Nephile was our Queen, we observed it devoutly, abstaining from our agreeable discussions, not only on that day, but on the ensuing Saturday. Wherefore, being desirous to follow the good example which Nephile has set us, I feel that for the next two days it would be seemly for us to suspend our pleasant storytelling, as we did last week, and meditate upon the things that were done for those two days for the salvation of our souls. The Queen's devout words commanded general approval, and so, a goodly portion of the night already being spent, she dismissed the whole company, and they all betook themselves to their rest. Here ends the seventh day of the Decameron. On the Sunday morning, the rays of the rising sun had already appeared among the highest mountain peaks, the shades of night had departed, and all things were plainly visible when the Queen and her companions rose from their beds, and after sauntering for a while on the dew-flecked lawns, they made their way, the hour of tears being nearly half spent, to a nearby chapel where they heard divine service. Returning to the palace, they breakfasted in gay and festive mood, and after they had sung and danced a little, they were dismissed by the Queen, so that those who wished to go and rest were free to do so. But in compliance with the wishes of the Queen, once the sun was past its zenith, they took their places beside the delectable fountain to proceed as usual with their storytelling, and at the Queen's command, Nephile began as follows. Since God has ordained that I should tell the first of our stories today, I am well content to do so. And since we have talked a great deal, fond ladies, of the tricks played by women upon men, I should like to tell you of one which was played by a man upon a woman, my intention being not to censure the man for what he did or to claim that the woman was misused, but on the contrary, to commend the man and censure the woman, and to show that men are just as capable of deceiving those who trust them 
as of being deceived by those in whom they place their trust. Strictly speaking, however, the incident I am about to relate should not be termed a deception, but rather a reprisal. For a woman should act at all times with the greatest decorum, and guard her chastity with her life, on no account permitting herself to defile it. And although it is not always possible for us to observe this precept to the full on account of our frailty, nevertheless I declare that any woman who strays from the path of virtue for monetary gain deserves to be burnt alive, whereas a woman who yields to the forces of love, knowing how powerful they are, deserves a lenient judge who will order her acquittal, which, as was pointed out to us the other day by Philostrato, is what happened to Madonna Philippa in Prato. Well, that's just charming. Now, in the city of Milan there was once a German soldier of fortune, a fearless fellow by the name of Gulfardo, who, unlike the majority of his countrymen, was extremely loyal to those in whose service he enrolled. All right then, Giovanni. Don't like the Germans, good to know. And since he was always most scrupulous in repaying sums of money he had borrowed, he could find any number of merchants who were willing to lend him as much as he wanted at a low rate of interest. Since coming to live in Milan, he had fallen in love with a very beautiful woman called Madonna Ambrogio, the wife of a wealthy merchant, Gasparuolo Cagastraccio by name, with whom he was on the most friendly and familiar of terms, but neither her husband nor anyone else was aware of his love for the lady for he proceeded at all times with the utmost discretion. And one day he sent her a message, imploring her to grant him the sweet reward of his devotion, and affirming that he, for his part, was prepared to do whatever she might ask of him. After much humming and whoring, the lady made up her mind, and informed Gulfardo that she was prepared to comply with his request on two conditions. Firstly, that he must never breathe a word of it to anyone, and secondly, that... Since he was well off and she wanted to buy something for herself, he was to give her two hundred gold florins, and then she would always be at his service. Two hundred gold florins is an enormous sum. In a previous story with five hundred florins, a young man came to Naples to buy horses, quite possibly more than one horse, several horses. So this is a really large sum of money. On hearing of the woman's rapacity, Gulfardo, who had always thought of her as a perfect lady, was incensed by her lack of decorum, and his fervent love was transmuted into a feeling more akin to hatred. Being resolved to beat her at her own game, he sent word that he would be only too willing to meet her wishes, and do everything else in his power to make her happy. She was therefore to let him know when she would like him to come to her, and he would bring her the money, and she could rest assured that nobody would hear of the matter, except for a comrade of his whom he greatly trusted, who was privy to all his affairs. The lady, or strumpet rather, was delighted with this reply, and sent back word that in a few days' time Guasparolo, her husband, had to go to Genoa on business, and as soon as he was out of the way, she would let Gulfardo know and invite him to call. Having waited for the right moment, Gulfardo went to Guasparolo and said, I am about to drive a bargain, for which I require two hundred gold florins. Would it be possible for you to lend them to me, at the same rate of interest as usual? Guasparolo willingly agreed to lend him the money, and counted it out for him right away. A few days later, Guasparolo went off to Genoa as his wife had predicted, and she therefore sent word to Gulfardo that he should come to her, bringing the two hundred gold florins. So Gulfardo, taking his friend with him, went to the lady's house, where he found her waiting for him and the first thing he did was to hand over the two hundred gold florins in his comrade's presence, saying, 
Here, take the money, my lady, and give it to your husband when he returns. The lady took the money, thinking Gulfardo had used this form of words simply so that his comrade should not suspect he was giving it to her by way of payment. And she replied, I shall see that he gets it, of course, but first I should like to make sure that it is all here. Whereupon she emptied the florins out onto the table, and on finding to her great satisfaction that they came to exactly two hundred, she put them away in a safe place. She then went back to Gulfardo and conveyed him to her bedroom, where not only on that occasion but on many others before her husband's return from Genoa, she placed her person freely at his disposal. No sooner did Guasparolo return from Genoa than Gulfardo, having made certain that his wife would be with him, called upon him with his companion, and said to him in the lady's presence, Guasparolo, those two hundred gold florins you lent me the other day were not needed after all, as I was unable to complete the transaction. So I brought them straight back and handed them over to your wife. Do you remember to cancel my debt, won't you? Turning to his wife, Guasparolo asked her whether she had received the money, and since she could hardly deny the fact when the witness was staring her in the face, she said, Yes, I did indeed receive the money, but forgot to tell you about it. That settles it, then. Don't worry, Gulfardo, I shall make quite sure that it's entered up in the books. Having made a fool of the lady, Gulfardo took his leave, and she gave her husband the ill-gotten proceeds of her depravity, and thus the sagacious lover had enjoyed the favours of his rapacious lady free of charge. There's something delightfully classist about the idea that cheating on someone for love is nearly virtuous. It's nearly virtuous the way that they talk about it. Whereas cheating on somebody for money, being a sex worker, functionally, is utterly despicable. It's one of those... It's playing respectability politics. It's saying, no, 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 we who cheat on our partners aren't like those people who cheat on our partners who are totally worth disdaining and are all the bad things that you say about adulterers because those ones aren't doing it for any noble sort of reason. They're just doing it for money. But we who cheat on our partners aren't like that. We're doing it for love. We're doing it for this noble reason that is that is pure, that is nearly holy in being inspired by this wonderful thing that is love. And so you're not wrong, of course, to think that cheating on someone is terrible, but it's when you're cheating on someone for money, you know? It's that sort of thing. It's not those people who cheat on someone for love. Personally, I find that kind of thing, ah, uh, that kind of, well, let's put it bluntly, that kind of hypocrisy, I find pretty gross. I'm not a fan. The gentlemen and ladies alike were still applauding Gulfardo's treatment of the covetous Milanese lady when the queen turned, smiling, to Panfilo and enjoined him to follow. So Panfilo began. Fair ladies, it behoves me to relate a little story against a class of persons who keep on offending us without our being able to retaliate. I am referring to the priests, who have proclaimed a crusade against our wives, and who seem to think, when they succeed in laying one of them on her back, that they have earned full remission of all their sins, as surely as if they had brought the sultan back from Alexandria to Avignon in chains. 
Whereas we poor dupes who belong to the laity cannot do the same to them, albeit we may vent our spleen against their mothers, sisters, mistresses and daughters with no less passion than the priests display when assailing our wives, well, that's a gross way to describe it. But however that may be, I propose to tell you this tale of country love, more amusing for its ending than conspicuous for its length, from which you will be able to draw a useful moral, namely, that you shouldn't believe everything that a priest tells you. I say, then, that in Valungo, which, as all of you know, or will possibly have heard, is a hamlet, no great distance from here, there once lived a worthy priest, robust and vigorous in the service of the ladies, who, albeit he was none too proficient at reading books, always had a rich stock of good and holy aphorisms with which to entertain his parishioners under the elm every Sunday. And whenever the men of the parish were away from their homes, he was far more assiduous in calling on their wives than any of his predecessors, bringing them fairings and holy water and a candle-end or two, and giving them his blessing. Now, among the many women in his parish who had taken his fancy, there was one in particular for whom he had a very soft spot indeed. Her name was Mona Belcalore, and she was married to a farm worker called Bentivenia del Mazzo, and without a doubt she was a vigorous and seductive-looking woman, buxom and brown as a berry, who seemed better versed in the grinder's art than any other girl in the village. When, moreover, she had occasion to play the tambourine and sing a little of what you fancy does you good and dance a reel or a jig with a dainty little kerchief in her hand, she could knock spots off every single one of her neighbours. Master Priest was so enthralled by all these talents of hers that he was driven to distraction and spent his whole time loitering about the village in the hope of seeing her. Whenever he caught sight of her in church on the Sunday morning, he would intone a curie in a sanctus, trying very hard to sound like a master cantor when in fact he was braying like an ass whereas if she was nowhere to be seen, he would hardly open his lips. But on the whole, he managed to disguise his feelings, so that neither Bentivegna del Mazzo nor any of his neighbours noticed anything unusual in his behaviour. With the object of getting to know Monobel Colore better, every now and then he gave her presents, sometimes sending her a few cloves of fresh garlic, of which he grew the finest specimens thereabouts in his own garden, and sometimes a basket of beans or a bunch of chives or shallots. If he met her in the street, he would look at her with a forlorn expression on his face and whisper fond reproaches in her ear. But being a stubborn thing, she pretended not to notice and passed him by with her nose in the air so that Master Priest was getting precisely nowhere. One day, however, while the priest was strolling aimlessly about the village a little afternoon, he happened to meet Bentivenia del Mazzo, who was driving a heavily laden ass before him. The priest hailed him and asked him where he was going, and Bentivenia replied, Faith, father, to tell the honest truth, I have some business to attend to in the town, and I'm taking these things to the lawyer, Sir Bonacori, so that he'll help me to answer this year's summons I've had from the tawny general to appear before the judge at the sizes. The priest was well delighted. You do well, my son, he said. Go now with my blessing, and come back soon. And if you should happen to meet with Lapuccio or Daldino, don't forget to ask them to bring me back those leather thongs for my flails. Bentivenia promised he would see about it and continued on his way towards Florence, while the priest, having decided that the time had come for him to call upon Belcalore and try his luck, set off at a spanking pace, never slowing up for a moment until he had arrived on her doorstep. As he entered the house, he called out, God bless all here! Is anyone at home? Belcalore was upstairs, and on hearing his voice she called down to him, Oh, father, you are welcome, but why go traipsing round the village in this awful heat? By the grace of God, replied the priest, I've come to keep you company for a while, for I met your husband on his way to town. Belcalore came downstairs, took a seat, 
and began to sift a heap of cabbage seed that her husband had gathered earlier in the day. "'Come now, Belcalore,' said the priest. "'Must you always drive me to despair like this?' Belcalore began to laugh and said, "'What have I done to you?' "'Nothing,' replied the priest, "'but the trouble is that there's something I'd like to do to you, "'something ordained by God, and you won't let me do it.' "'Bless my soul,' said Belcalore. "'Priest, don't do that sort of thing.' "'We certainly do,' replied the priest. "'Why on earth shouldn't we? "'What's more, we do a much better job of it than other men, "'and you know why? "'It's because we do our grinding when the mill pond's full. "'So if you want to make hay while the sun shines, "'hold your tongue and let me get on with it.' "'What sort of hay do you mean?' said Belcalore. "'You priests are all the same. "'You're as tight-fisted as the very devil.' "'You only have to tell me what you want,' said the priest, "'and you shall have it. "'Would you like a pretty little pair of shoes, "'or a silk headscarf, or a fine woolen waistband, or what?' "'That's a splendid choice, I must say,' exclaimed Belcalore. "'I already have all those things. "'But if you're really so fond of me, why not do me a little favour, "'and then I would do whatever you want?' "'Tell me what the favour is, and I'll do it gladly,' said the priest. "'So Belcalore said, "'I have to go to Florence on Saturday to deliver some wool that I have spun, "'and get my spinning-wheel mended. "'And if you'll lend me five pounds, which a man like you can easily afford, "'I shall call at the pawnbrokers and collect my black skirt and the waistband I wear on Sundays. "'I wore it on my wedding day, you understand, "'and ever since I pawned it I haven't been able to go to church or anywhere else. "'Do me this one favour and I'll be yours for evermore.' "'So help me God,' said the priest, "'I haven't the money with me, or I'd glad you let you have it. "'But you may depend on me to see that you get it by Saturday.' "'Oh, yes,' said Belcalore, "'you make all these fine promises and then you fail to keep any of them.' Do you think you're going to treat me as you treated Beluzia, who went away empty-handed and ended up walking the streets because of what you did to her? God's faith, you'll not fool me so easily. If you haven't the money with you, you can go and fetch it. Oh, come, said the priest. Don't make me go all the way back for it now, when you can see for yourself that I'm rearing to get on with the job. By the time I return, there might be someone here to thwart our plans, and Lord knows when I shall be in such fine fettle as I am at present. That's your own lookout, she said. If you want to go, go. If not, take your fettle elsewhere. I like her. Seeing that she was not prepared to do his bidding without a quid pro quo, and had turned down his suggestion of a sine custodia, um, that's without, I think, without a um, security. The priest said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Since you won't trust me to send you the money, I'll leave you this fine blue cloak of mine by way of surety. Belcalore looked up at him and said, Will you now? And how much is the cloak worth? How much is it worth, said the priest? Well, have you know that it's made of pure do-eye, not to say true-eye, and there are those in the parish who would claim it's quadru-eye. I bought it less than a fortnight ago from Lotto, the old clothes merchant, for exactly seven pounds, and according to Buglietto d'Alberto, who, as you know, is an expert in such matters, it would have been cheap at half the price. Which, if you're paying attention, means absolutely nothing at all. Do I is also a location, according to the footnotes, um, not a measurement, so true I and quadru I are utter nonsense. Is that so? said Belcalore. So help me God, I never would have believed it. But anyway, let's have a look at it. Master Priest, who was champing at the bit, took off his cloak and gave it to her. And when she had put it safely away, she said, Let's go into the barn, father. Nobody ever comes near the place. So off they went to the barn, where he smothered her with luscious kisses and made her a kinswoman of the Lord God. And after spending some time in amorous sport with her, he made his way back to the church in his surplice, as though he'd been officiating at a wedding. 
By the time he arrived there, it began to dawn on him that all the candle ends he could muster from a whole year's offerings could scarcely amount to half of five pounds in value, and he could have kicked himself for being so stupid as to leave her his cloak. So he began to consider how he might retrieve it without having to pay. Being a crafty sort of fellow, he soon thought of a very good way of getting it back, and it worked to perfection. On the following day, which happened to be a feast day, he sent the child of one of his neighbours to Monabel Calore's house, asking her whether she would kindly lend him her stone mortar, because Binguccio del Poggio and Nuto Buglietti were due to breakfast with him later in the morning, and he wanted to prepare a sauce. Belcalore sent him the mortar, and when it was nearly time for breakfast and the priest knew that Bentivegna del Mazzo and Belcalore would be about to sit at table, he called his sacristan and said, Take this mortar back to Mona Belcalore and say to her, Father says thank you very much, and would you mind sending back the cloak that the boy left with you by way of surety? So the sacristan took the mortar along to Belcalore's house, where he found her sitting at table with Bentivegna, having breakfast, and having put the mortar down on the table, he gave her the priest's message. When she heard him asking for the cloak, Belcalore tried to speak, but Bentivegna rounded on her angrily, saying, What's all this about taking sureties from the priest? Jesus Christ, I've a good mind to thrash the hide off you. Pox take you, woman, go and get the cloak and hand it back and be quick about it. And just you remember from now on, if the priest wants anything, he's to have it, no matter what it is, even if he asks for our ass. Belcalore got up, grumbling and muttering to herself, and went to fetch the cloak, which she had tucked away in the chest at the foot of her bed. And as she handed it over to the sacristan, she said, Give the priest this message from me. Belcalore says that she swears to God you won't be grinding any more of your sauces in her mortar after the shabby way you've treated her over this one. The sacristan took the cloak back to the priest and gave him Belcalore's message, whereupon he burst out laughing and said, Next time you see her, tell her that if she doesn't lend me her mortar, I shan't let her have my pestle. It's no use having one without the other. Bentevenia supposed his wife had spoken as she did because of the scolding he had given her, and thought no more about it. But Belcalore was infuriated with the priest for having made such a fool of her, and refused to speak to him for the rest of the summer until the grape harvest, by which time he had scared the life out of her so very successfully, by threatening to see that she was consigned to the very centre of hell, that she made a peace with him over a bottle of must and some roast chestnuts. From then on, they had many a good guzzle together, and instead of giving her the five pounds, the priest put a new skin on her tambourine and tricked it out with a pretty little bell, which made her very happy. And with that story, which ends reasonably, let's say, I shall leave you for the evening. Bitching About the Decameron is created by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening.